So a handful of years ago, Time Magazine focused on a certain author's book with a front cover which asked, there it is, what if there is no hell? What if there is no hell? Many here today probably wondering the very same thing. Now, ironically, the New York Daily News also released this cover, released a cover on the very same week, which says, rot in hell. The very same week. Rot in hell. Obviously, a very disruptive cover, which reported the killing of Osama bin Laden. I bring this up, these public dichotomies, to highlight our own private ones here today that exist within this very room right now. So to be so bold, I assume the majority of this room is cut into two halves with the subject of hell, that being traditionalist and postmoderns. Two audiences who will hear today's talk and the rest of the talks we do on this radically different. Because for some, hell is the talk that solidified your decision, for some of you here, your decision to walk away from Christianity. For others, this is an embarrassing uncle of theology. And for others, this is a debate of immense historical and theological proportions. Like, you want to argue about it. You want to fight me afterwards, and you want whatever it is. And lastly, with saddened hearts, it is a topic that is emotionally explosive, where we all consider and remember our loved ones who may be there. So no one in this room wants to be me today. I don't want to be me today. (laughs) But now since I love you, and I love, love, love this church, and since it's biblical that teachers of the Bible experience a stricter judgment, I seek to tell biblical truth. So basically, I'm not going to lie to you. But I'm also not going to soften Christ's words. I'm going to treat you as adults and hopefully give you enough information so as to help you make your own decisions about Jesus, heaven, hell. No matter how much it might offend some today, and hear me on this, I hope, I hope we are greatly offended today. I hope we are offended today. So with a humble heart, may our prayers be that God's word would stand and our preferences be damned. May the existence of hell today hush our mouths, have, our, have truth ascend discomfort, and drive some of us to the outstretched arms of God. And other, others of us, Christians, it would drive us more and more into God's plan of salvation to our neighbors and to the nations. So, After all of that introduction, where do we start with such a prickly, powerful topic? The answer is Jesus. We start with Jesus. As author C.S. Lewis admitted, there is no doctrine, that being hell, which I would be more willing to remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full, full, full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. And as it's been so famously broadcasted, many here know, if not all, that Jesus talked more about hell than the whole of the Old Testament combined. Okay? So yes, meek and mild baby Jesus, Mr. Compassion, the ideal spokesman for all of our our charities and causes, the lifter of little baby lambs, spoke more about hell than he ever did about heaven. 
because of this, one English atheist philosopher hated Jesus with such a white-hot anger, he wrote in his best-selling book, Why I'm Not a Christian, these words. There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly, uh, profoundly human, humane can believe in an everlasting punishment. Christ certainly, as depicted in the Gospels, did, did, did believe in an everlasting punishment. I really do not think that a person with a proper degree of kindliness in his nature would have put fears and terrors of that sort into the world. This is exactly why, collective church, that we start with Jesus. This is why we start with Jesus. Because the idea of hell involves some kind of eternal punishment at the hands of a just and holy God. And because it is so profoundly difficult for us to, to, to handle emotionally, that the only person who has enough authority and wherewithal to convince us of the reality of hell would be, is Jesus himself. So today we have to ask the uncomfortable self, why in the world did Jesus decide to offend? Why did Jesus decide to offend by talking so clearly and so consistently about hell? Well, let's find out in some of the most penetrating hellish words of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, verse 22. Of chapter 13. Read with me. Luke 13, 22 should be on the screen behind me as well. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will, will those who are saved be few? Jesus, Rabbi, will those who are saved be few? How many people are getting saved? Oh man, is this not one of the most pivoting questions asked to Christians? What did he just ask? What did they just ask? Am I going to hell? Am I going to hell, in your opinion? Again, I can only assume there might be people here this morning wondering and asking that very thing, to which my response would be, how could I ever possibly answer that? Now notice, Jesus himself doesn't even answer it. Not because this one is unimportant, but to a kindred one, infinitely more important. Jesus skillfully shifts it from giving a percentage to pagans Two, a warning about those who would squander such an opportunity. We're going to see this in just a moment. I want us to see that they're saying, how many are going to be saved? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Will you be saved? They say, what's about the destination? And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. Tell me about your decision. So what is the decision that every soul here today must make? Jesus tells us, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Salvation with Jesus is compared to a door. Not just any door, but a narrow door. There's this beautiful image in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, do it, but it's beautiful. Where the protagonist named Christian heard of the impending destruction of his city, and there's this moment where he's freaking out and he's looking around and he goes, whither, uh, whither shall I fly? Where shall I go? And then a man named Evangelist pointed his finger across a humongous field and he says, do you see that small, wicked gate? 
And there's this great moment where Christian sees it and he starts bolting, he starts running. And all these different townspeople who are part of the destruction are saying, stop, turn around. And Christian puts his fingers in his ear. And you know what he does over and over? He screams, life, life, eternal life. And he runs towards a small, wicked gate. Now that is a powerful image, image in my opinion, that Bunyan did. But... But, 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 we mustn't think the door that symbolically stands between delight and destruction or between heaven and hell is a small door, like the one in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Remember that little door? Am I the only nine-year-old in here? This is not Jesus going, welcome. And he's not doing that. So it's not like that. The door is narrow, as in it's a tight fit. It's a tight fit requiring, requiring those who enter through it to strip themselves of personal terms and conditions. That is why it is narrow. We see this most clearly in verse 25 of Luke 13. When once the master of the house has risen, shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. I want us to notice something, and I want us to notice how close these people are to the door. They can touch it. They can see it. They can smell it if a door smells. They can do all of that. And yet, they haven't passed through it. Why? Well, for one thing, the Jewish people hearing this would have been freaking out. Because in their Jewish birthright, the Messiah will come for them. The Messiah will save them. That eternity was determined by lineage, customs, rituals, drinking, and eating. And Jesus takes this, this known idea and he puts it to rest. And Jesus says, no, it's narrow because choosing him is not the popular nor easy way. Jesus says, no, it's narrow because outward contact, motions, rhythms, charities matter very little to Jesus. Christ wants an inward response. Now, we went into this a lot last week, that being the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. So with your permission, we'll hit some of this stuff a little bit later on, but I would rather scoot closer to Christ's more depictions of hell, which I'm assuming many of us are curious about. So with your permission, we're going to go to verse 27. If you want the exclusivity of stuff, that's last week. Verse 27. Look at these heavy words. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, occurs seven times in your Bibles. Seven times. And guess what? All of them are spoken by Jesus alone. Remember, if Jesus Christ is the way and the truth, as we saw last week, then we believe what he taught, meaning we can't simply exercise the hard parts out. We have to take him at his word. So that being the most loving person who ever lived spoke so straightforward about the awfulness of hell. So for a few moments, like I said, let's unravel Christ's most famous descriptions of hell and even how they debate the world's most popular alternatives to hell. So if you're taking notes, we're going to start with weeping. These will be very quick. The original understanding of this word weeping is bitter wailing. You can think of it as, as 
acid rain coming from a face. You can think of it as sour tears. This is the deepest sadness in existence. There is no deeper sadness than this. It is the cry of the absolute hopeless. Showing us hell is a place of conscious sorrow for the unconscious have or would not weep. This, to me, knocks up against the very idea or the popular idea that hell is this overly spiritual realm, almost holographic. Possibly even thinking that, that this, is a, this is debating, in my opinion, a realm of annihilationism, if you guys have heard of that, where that is the ceasing of existence and consciousness will happen after a certain duration of time. More than that in just a second. Gnashing of teeth. Nobody wants to be me today. <laughs> Gnashing of teeth. This is a manifestation or, or a picture of the extreme anguish and utter despair. Christians think of the crowds when they heard Stephen proclaim the good news of Jesus in Acts chapter 7 and 8. What did they do? They grinded their teeth. They grinded their teeth in red hot fury. This is hell. It is agonizing hatred. What are they hating? More on that in a second. But again, it seems these biblical patterns of hell is to experience. It's about an experience combating the so many neo views of hell. Now, unlike this set of scriptures, most often the term or the phrase gnashing of teeth is linked to outer darkness. Verse eight of, excuse me, verse, uh, chapter 8 of Matthew. I just want to read this real quick and you guys will see what I mean. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness describes the type of darkness which is the furthest from the light. We used to think maybe that could be the black hole, but the last month or so has shown us we can even see something around there. See, where heaven has no shadow due to the glory light that emulates from God, hell is blindness upon blindness upon blindness. But this is unique, is it not? Darkness and fire coexisting, the light of fire, fire being the most common of hell descriptions everybody in here would think of. Mark 9, verse 48 says, in a description of hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There's nothing I can add to hellfire as far as trying to make us really understand it, other than apparently this fire is unquenchable. And it's similar to the undying worm, the undying worm, which if I can just say side note, is the greatest metal band name of all time. <laughs> Write it down right now. You heard it here first, the undying worm. Just putting it out there. So see, I got Kevin to laugh. That's rare. Yes! He's writing it down. <laughs> well, that's not bad. <laughs> So what does any of this mean? Jesus is referring to maggots. What does any of this mean? Well, these are maggots and these are worms that live inside corpses. Again, more on that in a couple weeks. But where flesh is consumed now in the ground, then the maggots die. But Jesus is saying that spiritual decomposition, a fire that doesn't end, means the maggots never get full. That's why the worm does not die. There's so much to eat. All of this should indicate an everlasting, pay close attention, hell should indicate all these terms, an everlasting deconstruction of creation. And that apparently destruction occurs without, without, without the extinction of being. Do you see that tension? 
Now these worms, these flames, do interesting notion of the neo-theology of universalism, which I can only assume some here believe and probably most have heard of. But that is the belief that all will be scooped up from hell into heaven, whether they want it or not, at a certain point in the hell or the, the time or duration of hell. Saying that heaven is obviously universal. But undying, unending, unquenchable, Jesus is very serious about the duration and the degree of hell, which should make many of us question the theology of universalism. Matthew 25, verse 46 says this, and they will go astray, or excuse me, go away into eternal, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal, eternal, eternal. I know there are some grammar and Greek arguments there, yet I am not quite convinced that universalism or even purgatory, another very popular theology of hell, hold very much water. And even nihilationism, I think, does make some valid and interesting points, though. I remember often what theologian J.I. Packer says, an endless hell can be no more removed from the New Testament than an endless heaven. So it's hard to get away from what seems to be considered the most unlikable view of hell, and rightly so, but also the strongest case for what's known as the fourth view of hell, eternal conscious torment. It seems terribly pointless to suggest that Jesus would make these pronouncements about eternal destinies, these declarations which have such a gravitas to them, and then all of a sudden for them just to dwindle out over a course of time in hell. Anyway, more on that in a couple weeks. What I'm assuming many of us are dying to be certain of is this. How literal, Casey, can we interpret these depictions and descriptions of hell Christ spoke of? Or is he just being super drama and emo? How literal can we take this, what Jesus was saying? I mean, come on, really, worms? I already made a question with the imagery of fire, the furnace, the lake of fire, which is very pointed imagery, but how can that literally coexist with darkness? Here's the thing, it can't. It can't. So we must be cautious in drawing rigid, or rigid, excuse me, doctrinal conclusions about the supposed function of fire, maggots, or teeth grinding in hell. We must be careful. When reading the Bible, when teaching the Bible, we have to remember the function of symbols, the function of figurative or metaphorical language in Scripture is to demonstrate a likeness to reality. Simple enough, symbols point beyond themselves. We got it. This is LA. We get it. We understand pictures. But the question is whether the reality to which the symbol points is less intense or more intense than the symbol itself. Are you tracking with me? So if we're saying, hmm, it's all symbolic. Thanks, Casey. No, that is not what I'm saying at all. There is no comfort in metaphors because it's possible that a rejecter of Christ who is sadly presently in hell would do anything he or she could to be in a lake of fire rather to be where they currently are. Does that make sense? So in full pastoral confession, even though we don't know exactly where hell is, how hell operates, and what it's really like, all of the imagery our Lord uses, fire, darkness, maggots, worms, teeth grinding, wailing, weeping, are vivid, vivid ways to describe what happens when one loses the presence of God. 
isolated from the favor and face of God, is then to confront unspeakable pain. Where we horrifically and endlessly come apart. All of this cutting us open, or at least it should, and asking who would want to be there? All this cutting us open and asking who would want to remain there? It must be flooding, hell must be flooding with regret, remorse, and pleading for an exodus. I mean, no wonder, Casey, you said there's wailing and weeping because people want out of there. But sadly, we're mistaken. If we say that, we're mistaken. Because hell is a cycle of self-recrimination, self-pity, and self-righteousness. Let me explain. It is folly to believe when a person spends time in hell that all of a sudden their relationship or longing for God improves. Verse 27 explains of Luke 13. I don't know you, says Jesus, says the doorkeeper, or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. If you were to examine these people's lives who he's talking to, or if you were to examine our own life, I'd be hard-pressed to call it evil. I really would. So then what evil have they done to deserve this? Simple, the answer is the word sin. Sin is the growling renunciation of God as king. This is very important. That is evil. That is evil. Or as this evil word is rightly defined, impure of heart. In C.S. Lewis's masterpiece, The Great Divorce, if you haven't read it, leave now, go buy it, come back when you're done reading it, okay? But in his masterpiece, a ghost from hell visits spirits in heaven. And as they're wandering about in these open fields, a resident from hell sees a spirit in heaven and is greatly bothered. And he goes, what, what are you doing here? You murdered Jack. What are you doing in heaven? This hell resident says to the heaven resident. You should not be here. You murdered Jack. And the heaven resident goes, yeah, I know. We're fine. He's good. He's over there. We're bros. I don't know how they talk. I'm assuming I took a liberty there. And the guy from hell who's visiting keeps saying, you shouldn't be here. And the guy's like, no, everything's fine. We're good. We're really good. And he goes, I was your boss. The man from hell says, You're, you, I'm your boss. I was in charge. What are you doing? What does this tell us of hell? That those in heaven, what this doesn't tell us, I should rather say this, though, those in heaven are good people and those in hell are bad people. That is not what I'm talking about. Heaven is populated with evil people. They're just forgiven. They're forgiven. The book of Colossians says it better than I could. Colossians 1.21. And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body the flesh by his death in order to what? Present you holy and blameless. Is this setting in? Those here, if I can speak to you who don't follow Jesus, if the thing you want most is to be your own master, your own Lord, your own Messiah, then the holiness of God will become agony. And the presence of God will be an annoyance that you will try to forever flee from. Sin and evil is calcified upon death, eternalizing our rejection of God, making God the most unwelcome, hated being in all of hell. You see why last week I asked a simple but puncturing question of, do you want God now? Not do you want God then? 
People get in the afterlife exactly what they want in this life. We are living eternal lives. Many of you or those out there who want to get away from God, God in his infinite justice gives it. And if you want that now, he will give it to you. As we see in the New Testament book, Romans chapter 1, it says, therefore God gave them up. It means that the worst and fairest response God can give a person is to allow them their own sinful heart's deepest desires. And if you're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't even know what that is. What's my sinful heart's deepest desire, Casey? Old Testament book, Jeremiah, says it like this. No one repents. Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. That's what we all want. Like a charging horse, we want whole and complete sovereign autonomy. Our fundamental nature is to be fugitives from God's presence. Remember the very first sin that provoked Adam and Eve. What did they do when the minute they were done? They fled from his presence and they hid themselves. That is hell. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. And look at this. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So, if heaven is eternal marriage to Christ, presence, then hell is eternal divorce, absence. Absence from God's benefits, from his benevolence, from his graciousness, his everlasting love, and so on. And so just so it's absolutely clear, we do not believe there is a budding repentance flowering in hell. Revelation 22, 11 says, Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. For more backing up on that point, J.R. Packer again says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, forever worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. So no, a loving God does not send people to hell. So no, a loving God does not send people to hell. Actually, what we're witnessing is the highest form of love there is in existence. Again, universalism says everybody will end up married, whether they want it or not. Nah, you're going to marry Jesus. And universalism is riddled with irony, is it not? Because in the efforts to make God more loving we are actually making him less loving. Universal and even aspects of annihilationism and purgatory is more about sentimentality, and it's not about true love at all. Making any and all worship of a God who steals you, who kidnaps you, and demands intimacy, that makes worship impersonal, cognitive, and machine-like. But to choose love, to choose love, like when Christine chose not to love the phantom at the end of the phantom of the opera. I'm going to bawl my eyes out right now thinking about that. <laughs> Whew. Christine, your choice, girl. Like To choose love is the greatest gift bestowed upon humanity at creation. To choose love and to allow yourself to be loved. 
That is what gives us boldness to sing the hymn which goes, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. So yes, today, collective church, be offended. But be also more offended by the good news of Jesus Christ. I think it might sound harsh for all of us into our modern sensibilities to look at a bloodied and bruised Jesus on the cross and to hear a preacher say, no, you put him there. I put him there. That's how God feels about our sin. It doesn't feel right. But to own that is to humble ourselves under the offense of the gospel, meaning it's the last surrender. It is the death of the ego. And that is why those knocking and seeking to come in in verse 24, what's it say? For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. They are only seeking to enter through moralism, heritage, and piety. But the execution of our own terms and conditions is freedom. Because the person who can say, Jesus faced the wrath I deserved, can also say, I have now been gifted with a love and favor that Jesus deserved. If I can for a moment, we've spoken quite a bit about what Jesus said about hell, but it's even more powerful and impactful for our church to see what Jesus did with hell. If you're going to hear anything here today, if you're going to hear anything, hear this, okay? The only punishment for our sins to an ineffable perfection, perfected holy God is eternity upon eternity of agony. I believe so much in his grandeur that the lowest level sin is still a great offense. But what takes infinite eternity to pay off, Jesus experiences in a matter of moments on the cross. Are we getting this? The intensity of damned eternity swallowed up completely, digested, engulfed by Jesus in the fullest. Hell is no more of an overreaction to sin on God's part than the sacrificial death of his own son. To downplay sin is to downplay the cross. To downplay hell is to downplay the cross. Only Jesus, only Jesus could describe the horrors of hell so grotesquely because he was about to endure them. He was about to eat them in our place, showing us that his sacrifice is not something to be mocked, but something not to be forgotten or ignored. Goodness, no. And again, for those of you here who suffer under the heavy weight of self-worth issues or self-valued issues, be so comforted by this. Oh, mama. Isaiah 53. Look at this. The results of his suffering he shall see and shall be satisfied. What a stupendous thought. Jesus suffered infinitely more than any human soul will in eternal hell. Yet he looks at all of it. And he looks at us and he looks at you and he says it was worth it. It was worth it because what I got in return. Christians, do you believe this? This is why Jesus says in verse 24 of chapter 13 of Luke, strive to enter through the narrow door. Not striving to receive salvation. That would undo the gospel completely. But the idea is to strain every nerve, to exert, to fight, to labor fervently, to strive, 
because of the supreme importance to believe and trust in that immense satisfaction Jesus felt. It doesn't matter, like the people Jesus spoke with, if you heard his teachings, if you ate with him. It doesn't matter if your parents are Christian. It doesn't matter if you went to Bible summer camps. It doesn't matter if you went to a Christian school. It doesn't matter if you think Jesus is a good moral teacher. Have you yet received and accepted and chose his love? Because that is the interception of hell. Jesus is the only Lord who keeps his door wide open. Hear this. He keeps his door way open at midnight saying to all those enemies and haters and backsliders and rejectors, come in. Come in. We don't do that. Anybody leaving their door open at their house in the middle of the night? Saying, anybody who doesn't like me, come in. He's creating all sorts of possibilities because the door is as narrow as himself and is as wide as the universe. Other faith systems and religions will tell you that you have to be a certain wealth, gender, nationality, tribe, ethnicity, culture to enter a door. Not with Jesus. Verse 29 of Luke 13. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. So in closing, the sobering reality is this, though. The door is closing. Hopefully, knowing that produces a few things. Hopefully, it produces great, great grief. Church, does your heart grieve those who are perishing? Your child, your mother, your friend, your boss, possibly the person sitting next to you. We're about to worship and sing in just a few moments, but we cannot celebrate the reality of heaven without grieving over the reality of hell. Second, if the doctrine of hell produces grief, it must also produce urgency, an incredible urgency. May we never look at those who are perishing the same again. Who in our lives need prayer this morning? If you need prayer, the entire prayer team is going to be on this side wearing yellow lanyards. Go to them. Like, I don't even know anybody who they are. Great, whatever. I don't care. Go and ask them for prayer. They want to pray over you and intercede. Say, I'm worried about this person and that person. Well, can we pray and be a church that has a great urgent hearts and plead for zealousness? I ask as your pastor that you would pray for our church, you'd pray for our hearts that way today. And lastly, hell should produce right priorities. Hell reminds us of what is truly important now. So today in our time of response, as you come up for communion on my right and on my left, and as you consider heaven and hell, Remember the elements represent this. Again, Isaiah 53, 11. The results of his suffering he shall see and shall be satisfied. I can only hope this kind of love, if needed, rearranges our value system. Any believer who is, who is understanding that they are saved from, who is understanding greatly what they are saved from, hell will produce heart and a drive that they will invest greatly in what they're saved for. Amen? Will you pray with me?